Hello and welcome to Cinephil's Take 18. Uh, this is David Capsule, and I'm here with Rob Luzecki. And uh, we've been done 18 of these uh, shows now at the end of this one. This one is about Les Samurai. Um, and uh, it was a film that Rob uh, suggested last week um, on account of our... Um, on our our Jim Jarmusch episode in which we talked about Ghost Dog and, and um, Coffee and Cigarettes. And Rob, I want to thank you for introducing me to this film. I understand it's a recent uh, revelation to you as well. Um, it was a cool film. Um, and it introduced me to a director I, I really had never uh, seen any films of before. Uh, so now I'm curious, super curious about some of his other works. Uh, Rob, have you seen any of his other uh, films? Uh, the Jean-Pierre Melville. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, David. And we, yeah, 18 of these. Wow. Well, s- someday we'll get the hang of it. I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. I came across uh, Melville because um, I thought Deleuze had referenced him in uh, Cinema 2. Um, but as it turns out, Deleuze was referencing Herman Melville. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> but like, well, you know, it was just... forgotten author, one of those obscure authors. Right. And I, it was just like a passing reference. And I was like, and so I looked up, I'm like, French film director's last name Melville and Jean-Pierre Melville popped up and he was active uh, throughout the six, the sixties and seventies. Uh, and uh, so it's like, well, Deleuze must've been talking about him. So I ended up watching this movie and then found out that Deleuze wasn't talking about him at all, but it was a damn good show. <laughs> so, and oh, I've seen goodness for, um, um, some uh, lucky happenstance because this, yeah, it was a, it was a it was a cool movie, uh, a sort of um, in the style of French New Wave uh, neo noir. Yeah, uh, and his other movies, I've seen a few of them, and uh, they were also good, but not as good as this one. Uh, this appeared to be his real. Uh, knock it out of the park where everything reson where the universe resonated perfectly. <laughs> okay. um, um so but like it's not like he was a hat or anything. It's just uh this was uh head and shoulders above everything else uh that he did in my opinion. And uh yeah it was uh hugely influential on Ghost Dog like uh the whole uh ring of keys thing was taken um jeff costello uh the hitman in this uh, has a ring of keys which will basically start any car and uh that plot device was modernized uh by jarmish and uh ghost dog and uh the whole samurai motif uh was uh, taken from this to Ghost Dog as well, even quoting the Bushido. Uh, mm-hmm. Not, not so much. Um, yeah, so I just uh, thought it, it was a, would be a cool thing to talk about. Um, and I, I really liked how this movie looked, uh, like it was because it was so banal. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there was no uh, brilliant color uh the bar uh marty's uh it had a cool interior and uh the the piano player's house had um a cool motif but those were about the only things everything else was uh pretty subdued and i thought that was a that in itself was a very interesting statement about uh, the criminal's life uh, and, uh, you know, which is counter to uh, a lot of what is what was going on in the new wave and a lot of what was going on outside of or in uh, appropriations of noir film, like where you have the celebration of uh, the criminal's life, uh, the the glamour and glitz of it all. And uh, here, no, 
and it's like that just wasn't present. He was all he lived in really a, a terrible flat um, with a bird. Yeah. With a bird, so yeah, the bird is a motif that occurs again in um, in Ghost Dog, um, and this this guy Jeff is a is a fascinating character. Again, he's um, instantiating some of the samurai's values and characteristics, um, uh, austerity at least in his living quarters, um, and a, a sort of um, practice perfection of his attire which I thought a curious juxtaposition because um, uh, his apartments really run down and shabby um, and he doesn't own much. It's clear, except he does have a, a really nice suit and a great trench coat and, uh, and fedora. Right. Yeah. That's, and, that's uh, about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he's obviously making, he's making bank. Like, you know, which is really interesting. Like uh, right. he's make, he's making a lot of money for these hits. And by the time we get to him in, in the film, he is an established uh, hit man. So um, yeah, one wonders where all this money was going or if it was going anywhere. Um, yeah. And I thought it was uh, a fascinating uh, glimpse into and his character is really inscrutable. You don't yeah. know what's going on there. You know, um, he's just a man on a mission and living by uh, a code of honor that is really there's there's not a lot to that. Uh, there's not a lot of room for negotiation. And uh, I thought that was a really fascinating uh portrayal of this um you get the sense yeah go ahead yeah, he's totally devoid of um of any sort of external show of emotions right he's got this uh besides his uh austerity in his possessions he's austere in his um words uh he doesn't speak much um and yeah, a couple of things though, i was researching melville and i'm um, trying to trying to learn a bit about him. Cause as I said, I hadn't really heard about him. Um, and, uh, it, 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 he's an interesting character, right? He, um, fedoras apparently appear throughout his movies. He's very much inspired by gangster films. Um, I haven't seen the other films that, uh, that he's made. I'm now very curious to see them. Um, I'm sure he grew up watching a lot of these sort of uh, noir films that I also enjoyed um, from from Hollywood, um, and you know he's obviously very well. Um, he, he has adopted them. I think Godard is in, influenced by him quite a bit, um, and I know that Godard cast him in Breathless uh, as in a, in a role. So um, although Melville is on the fringes of the the new wave, uh, he certainly is um, influencing it. Absolutely. And it was like Godard has this fascination with criminality in the in the early works, like all his new wave stuff, um, whereas uh, and one can't help but think that that was largely uh, or influenced by Melville's because all of all of Melville's films that I've seen, with the exception of one is about a Nazi um, in France, which I haven't seen. Uh, but all the other ones that I have seen are of are crime films. Uh, and they're excellent or they're very good. I don't think they're quite as good as Samurai. So he was a name and I did think I do think he was very influential on Godard, uh, less so on Truffaut um, and the other new wave uh, figures. But uh, Godard, like uh, in a band, in in a band apart, has like criminals uh, going on uh, in uh, Pierre the Fool. There's criminals in La Petite. There's there's gangsters in a lot of Godard's films. Um, 
in some respect, uh, there's no use listing off them all. Um, and another interesting thing about this uh, movie is um, it has uh, Alan Delon's wife, uh, Natalie Delon, uh, who plays his fiance in this. Right. They were married at the time, and then uh, shortly after this film, got divorced. Um, but uh, you can really sense that in, like those two characters there's so little dialogue in this film which is one of its great strengths but even between these two characters of jeff and his fiance uh uh jane uh there's sparse dialogue right yet there's so much communicated with the eyes uh with how they look at each other uh, or how they look at their surroundings when each other is in the room. Uh, and then like, there is a genuine emotion there. You, these, this is a couple and this is not, this is not two actors portraying a couple. There's chemistry there. Uh, there's uh, simmering sexual tension. It's, it's great. There's emotional involvement. Uh, that was something that uh, really appealed to me about this movie and also um it was more explicit in in ghost in ghost dog but how one doesn't need verbal enunciation to communicate mm -hmm. is again one of these one of the themes in this movie how uh, like just by the lack of dialogue yet the story is conveyed excellently simply by the camera simply by action right. um and also like how um jeff delon's uh yeah jeff costello uh alan delon's character is able to communicate with that bird uh the bird uh he the has, bird tells him about things doesn't it yeah like you know yes. like Somehow yeah. it tells him about the the um, the bug in his room. Um, I was puzzling over how he came to that realization, and he's paying very close attention to the mannerisms and the speaking of that little bird, and and somehow he got he, he this is communicated to him, right? And like it's from yeah, it's from that opening shot where well, that opening sequence which ends in us which has a still frame for a few moments and then uh it roll uh then the film rolls again of just delon communicating with or identifying with that bird like the very opening shot where he's like lying on his bed he smokes a cigarette and this and then there's the bird and then he gets up then he sits up in the bed and he looks at the bird and there's just that moment that moment frozen in time where it's like okay so there's something there there's some identification there uh they are they're joined at a level that is uh, below uh, individuation. Right. Uh, you know, and I found that to be uh, awesome. Uh, I like, and then it, and then how it pays off in ways that are not explained in the movie. Like the bird does let him know about that there's the bug there and the bird does let him know that um somebody uh when when, when the guy's he's in yeah, yeah yeah when he's ambushed yeah but like and we as the audience know that but we don't know how it's yeah it's, it's all mysterious and yeah. um doesn't need to be explained yeah we from that very first setup we understand that there is something between the bird and him um, that is, you know, somehow mystical or um, uh, supernatural or whatever it is. It, it, it allows him to, you know, communicate in a way he doesn't communicate um, in the film. This, this character, this is a character type that I've become very interested in. Um, and I've written a bit about, um, because it is uh, sort of um, a, a focus of a, a number of um, genres of movie 
uh, I, I'm thinking of um, so, you know, uh, Tarantino uses these sorts of characters. I'm thinking of the the bride in uh, Kill Bill. Um, you have this person set apart from society um, who is on a mission of some sort and is, uh, you know, uh, a loner. Uh, uh, um, and this is obviously a trope that we've seen in films for quite some time. And I thought that this this was a very compelling character, not much like Ghost Dog is. Um, the, the, the thing that he lacks, of course, is the at least until the very last scene, a sense of humanity um, that makes him more sympathetic. And that I thought Jarmusch did that um, with the ghost dog character and probably, you know, for whatever reasons he has. Um, uh, Melville just chose not to do it until that last scene. Right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, he is uh, not really a not really a human until that last, that very last moment, uh, really the last shot of the movie, um, which was uh, interesting how they were going to do that, or they did film that with Alan Delon's character smiling as uh, he died. Right. However, they didn't include, they reshot that because in a prior film, uh, Delon's uh, character, a different Delon character, was smiling when he died. And they figured, well, we can't repeat this. Otherwise, it'll, con it, it'll confuse the audience at or just not read uh, as profound as we want it to be. So they took that shot out. But they're actually stills uh remaining uh onset stills uh of uh delon smiling when he jeff did smiling when he dies um he does smile when he pulls the gun yes yeah yeah but uh apparently there's like some sort of like de niro like smile like at the end of uh once upon a time in america that uh just uh didn't make it into the film and um yeah. So you've written about this. Um, well, not well, the about trope. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in this, this, uh, idea of the, the loner, um, the, this, you know, the, the, the one that we've known in cowboy films forever. Um, well, at least in Sergio Leone, uh, the, the stranger who, um, has no particular, um, vested interest, uh, but who completes a mission um, because it's their duty instead of out of a sense of um, you know personal mission, it becomes a uh, some sort of duty they take on, and then they you know they they conclude the mission, and often it's tragic. Um, that's that's something I think that um, you know it, it, we revisit in a lot of films. Uh, Ghost Dog certainly has some of that. Um, this film certainly has that, this kind of austere, uh, um, yeah, non-human character who um, uh, <laughs> has these powers of some sort um, to, and then is relied upon and then somehow manages to do the right thing. So these are all parts of that trope. And it's interesting to me um, trying to categorize and understand what that means. I understand it in the context of cowboy movies because it fits the notion of this, you know, the, the frontiersman, the, the um, uh, somebody who's gone off to, you know, to leave society uh, and then somehow gets sucked into, you know, doing something um, to help others. Um, but not because of, uh, not because of their own moral code, but because it's, uh, uh, you know, um, somehow it's part of their part of their job or duty it's hard to explain that and i'm trying to understand it in the context of this movie yeah that, that sounds super cool david yeah i'd love i'd love to read some of that um yeah because yeah. yeah um in the context of this movie um i don't think it's a moral 
code, I think, uh, that Jeff is operating on. It, or if it is a moral code, it's a completely foreign moral code. And then can a, can a moral code still be a moral code and completely exterior or foreign? Uh, that's, you know, um, I think he's just operating by an axiomatic if you want, uh, it's like, okay, this is what must happen now. Uh, right. man draws, man draws a gun on me. Why does he draw a gun on me? Because the deal was botched. Okay. Now I must move in, in such and such a way. Like right. it's, it's the unfolding of an axiomatic, um, is how I see this playing out. Um, I'm not saying that, Jeff is a machine. Uh, I don't think that's quite right. Um, but it is very, but he does operate by a rigorous plan. Like, and we see this in, like, in the context of this movie, we see it by um, the rock solid alibis uh, that were, that everybody remarks on. Uh, that was played out so very well, like uh, from his first meeting with uh, Jane. Uh, and then he's like, OK. And she's like, oh, I so love it when you say you need me. And then he departs. And as he's departing Jane's building or Jane's flat, he's like he waits until uh, Wiener sees him. He makes sure of that and he makes sure that uh, Wiener, who is uh, Jane's other boyfriend or financial supporter, will see uh, him leaving, but not see him so close that he could identify him. Absolutely. Just probably. And um, then going to the card game and saying, OK, I'm here from this time. I lose. I And then somebody says, oh, you're going to lose money. Well, not I never lose all of it completely. And I just thought like his rock solid alibi, this rigorous plan um, doesn't. It, it seems to be just like, yes, here is the development or here is uh, the manifesting, the, the expression of an axiomatic at work. And I thought that was really, really, really cool in this movie. And It was, yeah. And, yeah. But, and it also has this um, interesting aspect of a sort of police procedural. Because um, <laughs> now we've got this inspector um, who you know, must solve this crime and, and, and knows, you know, he knows who did it, um, but he can't get he can't get the evidence for it um, because of that rock solid alibi, but there is a huge gaping hole in that alibi. And that is that um, Jeff has allowed himself to be seen by the piano player um, who just so happens for some, again, sort of uh, unknown reason to be willing to lie, uh, to not reveal who he is. Um, and so that, that was fascinating too, because I found again, I found um sort of the the feeling I have when I read uh crime and punishment, right? Um, where you you want Raskolnikov to get away with it, but you're also aware that he's guilty as hell. Uh and you're um well, I forget the um inspector's name and in crime and punishment. Um so do I, I yeah. In any case, yeah. you know, you don't like the guy, but you know he's right. Um and you want him to succeed him against against him so it's it's these uh strange there's a strange conflict that arises as a result of these characters and the situation they're in um and i thought that was interesting too so i don't know much about the civil law system um this is obviously this is a bit foreign to me as a american attorney <laughs> to watch how they how they try to um, question these witnesses in ways which would have been, which would be illegal in uh, the U S. Um, but I, but which I thought was also kind of fascinating. 
Yeah, I have, I have no idea about the civil law system in France. Anything you know about it is more than I know about it. Um, like, uh, like uh, it's like, okay, yeah, this happens. I, I guess there would be no Miranda rights in France. Uh, yeah, it seems like it, yeah. Yeah, right? but beyond that, I drag them into the station and, yeah. and question them. Yeah, and um, also one, uh, like, that period of France, like, um the government was a bit fashy you know like they're like from the top down so um like it didn't really change until Mitterrand came to power uh which was after uh 68 and this was 67 so yeah it was uh I guess I'm assuming this was just how the cops operated or maybe it was just done for filmic spectacle uh you don't yeah i've i don't know at all but i did think it was it was interesting um and how the cops were also not incompetent buffoons right uh and, and they, they had yeah they had devised this interesting system of tailing him kind of high tech um using informants um tracking him through the subways and um, you know, keeping in contact with these devices. So that was, yeah, that was that was also interesting. I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. Again, I, you know, I'm with all the fedoras and the trench coats. <clears throat> I kept thinking of of um, Godard because he does that a lot. In fact, there was a, I think there was a something. Somebody said something about. When um, I think it was Godard, he said something about when, when you when after Melville for Melville's funeral, you should just go wearing a trench coat and a fedora and smoking a cigarette or something like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that sounds about right. Yeah, um, yeah, but like the cops here, they weren't like in noir films. I'm no authority on this, but it seems that the cop that the law is usually this completely opaque force that the protagonists are operating against. Uh, like there might be one inspector or something, but that's about, you don't see the whole police force. You don't, vi you don't visit the police station. Right. Um, and here, no, the law is fairly rigorously and uh, elaborated. We know where yeah. they work. We know what they say to one another. We know what their offices look like, and they are all super duper competent. They've uh, come a long way since M. Yeah. Yes. Right. You know. Like, yeah. They, and it's not like the society creates its own system of parallel legal enforcement. No, no, no. The cops in this are the cops and they are the law. And um, a funny moment in this, an unintentionally funny moment that sort of took me out of the film was when uh, they were trying to track Jeff on the Paris Metro and they're, and they're like, okay, yeah, you want 50 cops to do this. And I was just like, and then they're like, yeah, no problem. Here's 50, 50 officers. We'll have them in multiple cars. We'll have multiple people on the subways. And I'm just like, what police force in 2021 could muster 50 odd people uh, to uh, track one single guy who did one hit? Right. You know, you know, like there's no way that would happen. You know, like it's like, yeah, well, put three people on the case and whatever comes of it comes of it. You know, uh, yeah. So that was kind of uh, times have changed, I guess, um, in law enforcement. Uh, I thought the, that was a, a cool sequence. And I just thought also like. Another cool sequence is how, well, throughout that entire subway sequence, I knew what was going on as the viewer. I, you could, it was like, here's a rat 
moving through a labyrinth to avoid his captors. And I'm very clear on how he's moving about. He is clearly confusing the cops, but he's not confusing me, the viewer. And I thought that was masterful filmmaking because in contemporary film, it seems a lot of what we see is like, okay, yes, the hero is doing actiony things and or doing things to elude the pursuer but what he's doing is eluding all understanding of what he's doing uh it's just a blur of motion it's just uh shots juxtaposed against shots uh where it's like okay um that this is happening. I don't understand where the cops are, why they are confused. I don't understand what his mission is, um, what his agenda is. Whereas in Le Samurai, particularly in that subway seat, uh, chase sequence, it was very clear what he was doing and why he was doing it, why he's getting off this train, why he's getting on that other train, why he's taking this exit, why he's not taking that exit. Um, this was all masterfully done, done with a certain patience as a director that um, I think is honestly lost on uh, contemporary directors in um, thrillers. Like, I love... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I thought that the austerity of the filmmaking was perfectly in line with um, this sort of character study. Um, you know, there isn't much in the way of soundtrack. I don't recall much of the way of soundtrack. I don't even remember. Was there atmospheric music or not? Um, there's a lot of sort of documentary style shots. Nothing really... Um, snazzy in terms of the cinematography. Um, I, I would, yeah, I would describe it as a sort of documentary style. We were just kind of following along almost cinema verite. Um, and um, that makes sense, you know, given the, this subjects, um, he's not, he doesn't, he wants not to call attention to himself. He wants to, to, you know, be the successful sort of back, uh, assassin who can, evade detection and so the the style of filmmaking seems you know um it, it it's it's not um it's not out of line with the subject matter so i i i was you know there's nothing it's nothing you you find striking or noticeable until after the fact and you sort of ruminate on it um because it's you know we don't see a sort of wells style uh, attention to cinematic detail Yes. Yeah, you're right. Um, so you mentioned uh, why the the pianist uh, whose uh, whose name escapes me. Uh, oh, that is uh, Kathy Rosier, uh, who was apparently a very famous model. Um, okay. Uh, not in or in France, I guess. I don't know, but uh, and this was her only film role. Um, why? Jeff lets her live and why she lies. Uh, you mentioned this. Uh, do you, do you have any thoughts about why, uh, she, uh, Jeff lets her live and why she lied? So these are, yeah, these are still mysteries and I don't think we're supposed to fully understand it. Um, again, there's some sort of communication with them in that microsecond. They, they look at each other. Um, uh, and it, and it could be a number of things, which also he, raises in this brief conversation with her um perhaps um she wanted the guy dead uh and you know uh, perhaps she was the she had ordered the hit uh or maybe she just doesn't like the guy uh and this was a happy happenstance that uh, she's willing to live with um we don't know um and that's interesting too so he get he Frankly, he screwed up by letting himself get seen, uh, but he gets lucky. And then um, uh, that um, ends up being a sort of karmic uh, um, uh, way for him to, to help her, because as it turns out, 
the people who want they they want somebody wants her dead and um and he saves her uh and uses the cops um for that so that that's a that's a fascinating twist and gives him finally some sort of uh moral uh character or center um that you know i, I that wasn't there as i said earlier until the very last scene yeah yeah it is it is an enigma so let's try to piece let's try to piece what's going on uh in this film okay so first of all marty's killed the bar owner well we know that jeff has never seen marty before uh this was the first and last meeting we know that because of marty's reaction and jeff's like yes i'm here to kill you bang and then uh we find out that uh the hit was ordered by Oliver Ray. Uh, that's the character's name, uh, Jean-Pierre Posier, um, who uh, ordered the hit. Um, and is a big is time mob. Who tries to double cross him? Is he the blonde guy? The blonde guy is Oliver Ray's uh, go-between. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, Oliver Ray is... Kathy Rose, the piano player's uh, boyfriend, or there's some sort of romantic. They're living in the same apartment. Um, and then what we got, so Oliver Ray, Kathy Rosier, are, li- or I'll go by her name, Valerie, the pianist are living together in the same apartment. Oliver Ray orders the hit on uh, Marty for whatever reason. Uh, We don't know. Um, The hit is ordered by the, or the message is conveyed by the blonde guy. Then, um, for whatever reason, Valerie sees... uh, Jeff, when he finishes killing Marty, and she is instructed to, I think, she's instructed to lie uh, by Oliver Ray. Okay. I that, think. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So like, it's yeah. not just her, 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 her choice. She's. Yeah. She's following through with some sort of plan, and that makes more sense to me. Yeah, yeah. And why didn't Jeff kill her? I like. I don't think Jeff had any idea who she was at, when at the killing of Marty. But like, why didn't Jeff kill her? He's like, well, I'm not contracted to kill her, so why would I? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it reminded me of the sparing of the life of the girl in um, in Ghost Dog. Exactly um, right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, precisely that. Daughter. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. That, that now that that makes a little more sense to me. Um, and then, but then his sparing of her at the end. Um, so that can only end one way because he has been contracted and he doesn't fulfill the contract. Right. Um, but he'd already okay. What happened up to that point? Um, so he has another meeting with Valerie, uh, where he says, where he gets into her car outside of Marty's and he's like, okay, um, who, uh, who contracted me? Uh, he's asking her if she knows who wanted Marty dead is the question, uh, he asks Valerie. At that point, uh, Valerie uh, takes him back to her, her and Oliver Ray's apartment and says, okay, um, give me a call in two hours. Um, and then I'll, uh, or later on at six, and I'll let you know, and we'll talk then. Jeff goes home. Uh the bugging of his apartment happens, all of that goes down. And he phones Valerie back and uh, she doesn't answer the phone. So now Jeff is like, he's like, well, she knows something. 
but I can't get any information out of her. So I was curious why she didn't answer the phone. When, uh, she yeah. told him to call and, and yeah. then she doesn't answer. And that, well, was that a message? I was confused by that. I think at what had she talked to Oliver at some point. Okay. Uh, because there's things happening in this film yeah. outside of our, yeah. and this is interesting. So the film is, um, is not fulfilling some of the things that cinema is expected to fulfill, right? The audience is usually in on what's going on while the character um, might be out of the loop. And here we're in an interesting position of also being sort of out of the loop. Absolutely. We're having to piece this together uh, as we go along. Uh, and in retrospect, honestly, like it's, it's, it's not clear that I'm assuming that uh, Valerie and Oliver had a conversation from deaf meeting Valerie to the phone call. And uh, Valerie's like, look, uh, this happened. Um, What are we going to do about this? Uh, Or she just raises this question to Oliver. At that point, Oliver says, okay, he talks to the blonde guy. And he issues and he goes, go make amends with Jeff. Offer him a new contract. The new contract is for Valerie. Why is it for, why is it on Valerie now? Because uh, Valerie has revealed herself to be unreliable and loose lips sink ships. Um, And she can't be trusted. If she's going to talk to Jeff, Oliver thinks, why wouldn't she talk to the police? And um, so he issues a hit on Jeff or on Valerie uh, for Jeff to carry out. Blonde guy goes to Jeff's flat and says, okay, um, so we're sorry. We made two mistakes. One, we assumed whatever they were. And then he says, so here's the new hit on Valerie. Uh, at this point, Jeff, and at that, during that conversation, Jeff also finds out that Oliver Ray is the person who gives uh, the blonde guy his orders. Yeah. And and I thought there was a beautiful line at that scene where there was like, okay, <laughs> after he gets us out, uh, he gets it out of the blonde guy, Jeff does. He's like, okay, you know, welcome to unemployment or something like that. <laughs> and then he goes and he kills Oliver Ray um, because Oliver Ray is just, he can't be trusted as a retainer. Right. He's a, he's an unreliable retainer and and then he goes and he's going to kill and then he's going to at least perfunctory perform the action of killing Valerie, knowing very well that he's going to die. Yeah, it's a, he, he has done suicide by police Yeah, um, as his final act of um, um, contrition, I guess, or something. Um, yeah, for for what he what he's been a part of. Yeah, well, and he's all like, there's also like this whole like samurai without a master thing, like a samurai yeah, without a map. Yeah, as a Ronin, and this film was uh, based on a book called The Ronin. Yeah, so yeah, like you know, there is like that's kind that's kind of how I put it together, like uh, or you know. But I, like, there are so many inferences there and so many things that were not shown on the screen that I could be completely wrong. That's interesting that this film lets you do that or makes you do that. Um, because yeah. as I said, you know, this is a, this is an affront to what we're used to in typical sort of Hollywood uh, pot boiler filmmaking where 
uh, we're let in on things that the, the main character doesn't know so that we know what's going on. And here we're, you know, we're until the very final scene where the cop, where the cop or the detective shows us the revolver was empty. Um, now we've got to go back and sort of think it through and do what you've done an excellent job of and piece it together and make it make sense. Yeah. I, I want to say again, I might be completely wrong on what was no, actually no. going on. You know, like it, it, it seems that seems credible and logical. Um, and it also makes it an inch again. I said this was a sort of documentary, and it, it kind of is. Where I don't know, I've been watching a lot of these Netflix true crime documentaries where you know we don't really know uh what happened, uh, and we got to kind of piece it to, together ourselves. So that's that's a fascinating way to tell the story you've seen any good ones on netflix i've been watching those too i haven't i haven't seen anything particularly great not particularly great no it's just a i i watched the waco one recently um Ah. and that's that's a really important one i think culturally to see um but you know um this notion that there are these unsolved mysteries out there right that uh, uh, a fictional cinema uh, piece like this um, makes you also have to uh, puzzle through it yourself is is kind of fun. It's not it's out of character in the sort of crime procedural mystery. And I appreciate it. I appreciate the director was willing to do that. Yeah, uh, it was awesome. Um, now, so if that's a reason he kills or uh, Jeff doesn't kill Valerie. Um, what are your thoughts on what was going on between uh, Jane and well, two questions for you. What was going on between Jane and Jeff? Was there anything deep there? And then um, what was the really the characters of the police inspector and Jeff, this is my second question. Uh, are they foil? What's are they foils of one another? Are they the same sort of figure? What is happening? What is the relation of those characters uh, to one another? Uh, Interesting. So yeah. Jane and Jeff, uh, I thought of that as mostly a business relationship. He keeps this alibi. Uh, handy when he needs a a job, although they know each other. Um, Sort of in the similar relationship that the assassin and um, um, the woman in um, Fallen Fallen Angels had. Um, Professional, but, you know, they're interested in each other and maybe they occasionally sleep with each other. Um, That was my take on it. because she, you know, she has other friends or clients or whatever um, that she sees um, and spends time with as well. As for the inspector and Jeff, I do, I think they are, you know, similar characters. The inspector says something interesting while um, the cops are ripping apart um, Jane's apartment about him being a you know, a fan of civil liberties or whatever. Uh, he, he doesn't know he's become more liberal in his old age. He used to be like those caps, but now he's more liberal. And I, I see him also practicing his profession in a, uh, kind of, um, very careful way. Um, but that a way that is his own, um, that he's made his own. He's not doing standard police procedure here. He's, dead set on getting the guy um, and he's going to do whatever it takes to get him. Um, so yeah, I see them as, as similar characters, both abiding by their, their particular codes um, in their, you know, on different sides of the law and the law is, I mean, it, nobody really cares if these underworld figures are offing each other, do they? <laughs> so the laws, I mean, the law is sort of morally indifferent, I think to whether, he, Jeff gets caught. It's just something that the law has to do. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense to me. Um, yeah, I think you're right on uh, both counts there. Um, I, I really didn't know what the relationship 
was uh, between uh, Jeff and Jane. And I wanted your uh, thoughts on that. Uh, like it was very ambiguous. Um, I think she had feelings for him. I don't think, or if he did have feelings for her, I think he, these feelings were uh, conditioned by the awareness that it would never possibly work out and that he could be no other thing than he was. Right. And, and that, yeah, he could never be the man she needed him to be, uh, to put it in entirely cliche terms. Um, you know, like, um, I thought the, the, so I think you're right, right, really right on that. Um, the police, uh, commissioner, uh, was, uh, Francois Perrier. Uh, I think my pronunciation's right. Anyway, he was, a he was a comedian. He, um, in all his other roles, he was a comic actor. It's like, so this was, he, he was really acting against type here uh, for him. And I thought he did a hell of a good job. Uh, like, uh, yeah, like I, I would have, I would have never seen that. Uh, I would um, thought that he was like basically like a, a Jerry Lewis. <laughs> that, that wasn't uh, what was going on uh, in this role. And um, he was. Yeah, I don't think he gave I don't think he cared at all about civil liberties. Uh, he was just uh, yeah, he was gonna get this yeah, guy. That's what yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like we'll use whatever methods we have to, including uh, breaking into this guy's apartment, uh, Jeff's apartment, um, including uh, roughing up uh, one of the witnesses, uh, <laughs> interrogating her in a rather hostile manner, and threatening her. It's like, yeah, you know, like in in a slightly different circumstance, uh, you or the argument could be made that you are a prostitute and I could get the vice squad on you and you don't want that. Um, you know, like get like threatening, intimidating witnesses like he is acting like a gangster. Um, and uh, yeah, so I thought that was uh, interesting. Uh, yeah, so. I think your reading of the characters was correct. Um, and I just love, again, I, how, like, there was, like, this movie was made in 1967. And there was a, there's a little book that came out, like, in, I guess, uh, the late 40s in France, uh, The Ethics of Ambiguity. And um, it's amazing to me how much of this movie is just ambiguity. Like it's yeah. ambiguous, yeah. Like you know, and like that ambiguity is also uh, like Merleau Ponty's all about that in uh, Phenomenology of Perception, uh, which had been published prior to this as well. So this is really, and again, I'm not saying that Melville read Beauvoir or, or Merleau Ponty, but he was really in touch with the same Z zeitgeist as these two figures they're oh. they're, re they're really it's like yes the moral codes and what is going on in the lived experience is profoundly ambiguous and uh, this is a non-deterministic world we're running in we're operating in it's a world of things happening where multiple meanings might be applied where things might have happened or might not have happened. Like my only way of making sense of this film is to Im import a whole bunch of pro of um, stipulations, propositions, which there's no evidence that they occurred, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like there's nothing that, that like, uh, that indicates this. Um, it's not shown. And just like why Jeff's, uh, how Jeff communicates with the bird is not really, or it's shown. We, we see him communicating with the bird, but we don't understand it. Uh, you know, and I thought, um, and Jeff's, ultimate uh moral code uh yeah again it's like uh, well it's 
one can assume it's there, mm-hmm. but that is an assumption. Yeah, it's you just know, a way to make sense of it. Yeah, yeah like it could well be that there's no sense to it too yeah you know like that that is like a stipulation it's like oh he did this he let the girl live because well you know because of some kantian moral ethics or some kantian morality that's like or social contract theory you only do what your contract says you know you know like that's an assumption on the viewer's part maybe you let the girl live because he he liked piano music. I don't fucking know. Right. You know, like. it's, all, it's all kind of, and again, that, that makes it a, that makes it a really interesting film. Uh, the neo-noir um, movement um, moves on from the, you know, the old noir movement where everything's pretty much laid out for us and allows us that sort of ambiguity. And I, I find that, I find that interesting and compelling and, and, and a reason to admire that. Yeah, moved on is exactly the right way. Like noir movies, okay, it's like the moral code. The world is a terrible place uh, in noir in noir films. The people, the characters in noir films are all flawed characters. They're all operating outside of or by their own private morality if such a thing's even possible by their own um standards uh the law is failed um so it's sort of the noir films you really got an end to the kantian moral project the kantian moral project has failed um that's what noir noir films say and then we the neo noir with Lisa Mari. It's like okay, so what happens now? Well, something new comes into play: an ethics of ambiguity, a world of ambiguity, a world that does not. And then, like, what it, like to take it back to uh, Kantian morality? It, it's failed. Well, what was the fundamental thing of Kantian morality? Judgments. Judgments are the most primary thing in Kantian philosophy and then the Kantian moral, and they are the core. The moral judgment is the core of Kantian morals. It constitutes reality. And then it fails in the noir films. It fails time and time again. So judgment, a system of judgment has failed. Well, what are, what are you left with after that? So it's this is, yeah, yeah, this is what I, I think is fascinating. And I think the neo-noir um, and then uh, the films I'm going to suggest uh, next um, embrace, uh, and that, this is what I've written about, um, a different notion where it is aesthetics. There's some aesthetic um, uh, that is beyond, it's not simple judgment. It, it's not a moral um, it's not a moral world we live in. It's an, it's an aesthetic world we live in. So that, that's my, that's my interpretation. And that you know, we, the, the, that style of filmmaking, I think captures it. Even if we go to Blade Runner, we see that, um, that there is an aesthetic, um, uh, move after the, after the abandonment of moral judgment. And that's, that's, you know, has a promise of justice or has a, has a sense of justice. If that makes any sense, it might not. That, that makes total sense. It makes me totally excited for your next recommendation. And I just want to say that claim that the aesthetic is what dominates uh, or what is uh, the condition that is really at play in Los Samurai. Like mm-hmm. this, it's the aesthetic that's doing all the work. And yes. that's, a, yeah, so that, that sounds awesome. So, yeah, um, what movie are you recommending, David? <laughs> I have another double double header and that there's sense to it. Um, so uh, it's Yojimbo by Kurosawa and A Fistful of Dollars, uh, um, uh, Sergio Leone uh, Spaghetti Western, um, <laughs> which might sound bizarre, but there's actually a tight relation between those two films oh. and the things we've been talking about. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I'm familiar with both those films. Uh, yeah. And I see the connection. That's awesome. That'll be so exciting to talk about. Uh, great. Uh, yeah. I don't think we've done a cowboy film, a Western. Uh, I am a big fan of Westerns um, of all kinds, um, but also the Sergio Leone and, and after, um, which I think takes neo-noir into the Western um, uh, genre um, and runs with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It'll it'll be great, and the, the it not only uh, the neo noir, but it's also doing some. It also imports like uh, the Japanese films, uh, Kurosawa, and which yep. is awesome. So that sounds great, David. Well, that'll be awesome. So thank you so much for this great conversation, and thank yeah, you thank for you our for audience. introducing me to this uh, film. And and yep, thanks to the audience, and I'm looking forward to our next uh, talk on 